This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Welcome, everybody, back to M&M, the podcast. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Matthew. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you? Fantastic, thank you. Great to be back. It's so good to be back here at the On Track studio where we've been recording this season and having some amazing conversations about all things M. Mm-mm. And as our listeners know at this stage, we have changed things up ever so slightly. We are introducing M themes for our episode and then extracting from that some M words which we can delve into. We certainly are. We've got a really exciting one today. We do. Just before we get going, we would really like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on lands of the Sunshine Coast that were not ceded to Europeans. We acknowledge the elders, the young people and the ancestors of the Indigenous First Peoples who live on country on these lands now called Australia and who endure on this continent as the oldest continuous living culture on earth. We're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on lands that are on country, on the beautiful, very special place now called the Sunshine Coast. Beautiful. Thank you, Michelle. And it is a very beautiful and special place, isn't it? It is. It's lovely. We're very lucky to be here. And what do we do on this podcast? We have a bit of a chat about M words. We take a light-hearted look at language through an M-coloured lens. And isn't today's both light-hearted and deep? Oh, yeah, baby. So today's episode, Dear Value Listener, is Merkin 9 to 5. Merkin 9 to 5, Michelle, what would you say about that? Merkin 9 to 5, what a way to make little... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Mm. Silly me. Um, We'll edit that out later. Merkin 9 to 5 is our working 9 to 5, but with an M in front of it, pretty much. And who can possibly avoid Merkin as a word? Absolutely. What a beautiful word it is. So what has the podcast done for you lately? Well, we've taken a deep dive below the earth. I'd like to introduce everybody to Dave Redette. I'm just going to give a little introduction to Dave before we say hello. So, known as a hydrometallurgist extraordinaire and an alchemist to the stars. I mean, that's a title, Dave. That's the title. That is a title. So, Dave grew up with three brothers in a northern industrial suburb of Adelaide, Elizabeth, home to the majority of the 10-pound poms. His mum worked at a local school and his Aussie dad, an aeronautical engineer, initially worked at the Weapons Research Establishment, later renamed the Defence Science Technology Organisation, located at the nearby Edinburgh Air Base. Dave is outdoor sports mad family. Through his mum, music and theatre was also very significant and he has performed in the Boy Scout gang shows. Dave, so many questions around that, but we'll move right along for now. So Dave's one of four boys and was anointed to follow the engineering footsteps of his dad. He loved school and probably the sports and social focus may have impacted the academic side and he realised he wasn't the smartest but he was up there when it was required. One day at university he was swayed by science physics and really pulled towards metallurgy which is the career under the Merkin 9 to 5 that we're going to explore with him today. He was fascinated by the practical application of the sciences in relation to the real world and the lowest required university entrance score for the engineering subject. The path was set and Dave never looked back. He's developed a love of the alcoholic li- 
liquid refreshments, so it's no surprise that he began to specialise in hydrometallurgy. Firstly working on remote locations around Australia and now travelling overseas all over our little planet. He has a flair for English and performance and he found a niche in personal development by writing and presenting technical papers at international conferences based on projects and experiences at the different mine sites. Dave's publications now number over 100. He's maintained a very active sports focus, representing Australia in age group at Triathlon World Championships in 2003, and even won the Australasian Adventure Race Champion in his 40s and 50s. Last year, he celebrated his 60th and completed for the 20th time at the Rapid Ascent Adventure Race in WA, finishing in just under six hours, taking out the silver medal. Dave moved to the Sunshine Coast 10 years ago and now enjoys semi-retirement with his partner Sharon, enjoying outdoor sports, acting, foods, fine wine and of course friends. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, and thank you very much for the invite along. No, no, you're absolutely welcome. There's some nuggets in that little bio, isn't there? There certainly are. Thank you so much for being here, Dave. I have to point out that metal is also a word that starts with M, and clearly you are a highly accomplished <laughs> medalist, as well as metallurgist. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's hard being good at everything, Dave. Oh, apologies for that, yeah. but not really. <laughs> <laughs> and just to keep on track with the M word, too much. My company name is actually M Works. M, the letter M works. How perfect M works. is that? That's very great. We're on brand. Welcome to the podcast. You definitely <laughs> fit in with these M people for sure, baby. <laughs> so we understand that metallurgy is, is a domain of material science and engineering and that it encompasses both the science and the technology of metals. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in the industry? Yeah, look, I mean, metallurgy is defined as the art and science of extracting metals and uh, from their ores and then modifying those metals for human use. I learnt at university, studied there for, let's say the degree was four years, but I might have spent a little bit more time there for social reasons. Um, <laughs> good, probably good. extended the stay because I enjoyed it so much. And to fund that, worked at the university as well as a research assistant and then moved into the industry and have travelled ever since. As I said, working through Australia initially and then moving overseas, which is one of the joys of the profession is it's recognised everywhere in the world. Absolutely. And I've basically worked in every state and I looked at every continent apart from the Antarctica. Wow, eh? So you've looked under the ground pretty much on every continent. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll pull you up there. I try not to look underground. That's the area of other people in my field. I try and stay on the surface. It's much safer there. <laughs> Did you spend any time underground? In as the... little as possible. Right. Yes. And yeah. is that because of a natural aversion yourself to being underground? Or Yes. So I think a lot of people don't know what a metallurgist is. Yes. It's one of those ones, often when I tell somebody I'm a metallurgist, they go, oh, you deal with the weather then, do you? And I just have to look at them and go, no. No. That's, no. A, that's another episode, meteorologist. Correct. Correct. So okay. the, the way I explain where I sit in the overall scheme of things in the industry is... A lot of people know what geologists are. Geologists are people who walk around the countryside licking rocks, talking to rocks, <laughs> finding rocks. I being have very seen ex- them lick them, yeah. Yeah, very, getting very excited by them and basically discovering 
ore bodies. Um, once the ore bodies are discovered, we then get the mining engineers involved, and they're the people we don't like because they're the ones who dig the big holes. <laughs> okay, so not nice people, but we have to live with them. Any- a necessary evil. A necessary evil, yeah. And they'll either mine them in the form of an open-cut mine, which is you see at surface, or they go underground and they dig large, deep holes underground, which is where most people assume a lot of the work is done. But mostly the mining engineer just mines rocks. Yes. That's what they're good at. Yeah. Not much more. The opinion of Dave is not shared by the <laughs> presenters of Eminem the podcast, but please keep going. And then the, the mining engineers deliver the rocks to the surface. And then what the general public doesn't understand is what happens then. What does happen then? Well, that's where the metallurgist comes in. And the metallurgist's job is then to convert that piece of rock, which may contain, let's say, gold. Yes. But it may only contain gold at one part per million, which is about a ping pong ball in a football stadium and we have to extract that gold from that piece of ore and produce a pure bit of gold. So that extraction process is a chemical process? It's both a physical and a chemical process Mm -hmm. and it varies between all of the metals and all of the ores. So it's an incredibly diverse range of processes. And prior to the ore having been removed from the earth, would you have been involved in proving up the resource before the mining engineers go in and make the big hole that they dig? Yeah, With the geologist or separate from? No, with the geologist and the mining engineers. So the projects go through a series of development phases. So the first one is a geologist finding some rocks which are of interest. And then typically what we'll do is we will try and drill some holes in what we think is the ore body. So these holes will be 10, 20 centimetres in diameter and they can go to depths of a kilometre to try and find this material. And what we get out of that is called a core. So it's just a solid lump of rock. And then what we do is we study those rocks and the minerals within those rocks and then we look at ways and means of the most efficient way of extracting the valuable materials that we're looking for from that rock. So the way that the physical and the chemical processes play out are the result of your analysis of the core and your recommendation as to how those processes are then undertaken from there. Yep. And then we'd basically prove that up in a laboratory on a very small scale. So we'd take a subsample and we'd go into a laboratory and actually conduct a series of tests to Mm. prove to people that this would be the process that we would follow. So before big money, you have to have something to go to the table with and go, we are confident that. Correct. Before these mining magnates and everyone starts to, you know, really invest, you actually have a small sample to go, we've got something here. And from our point of view, there is value to us going further. Yes. And the way the process goes typically these days is there's three phases to that work. So there's what we call a scoping study, which is someone thinks they find something that we can only afford to spend a small amount of money on it. And these are normally the exploration companies. And so that's the due diligence phase, is it? Well, no, that comes later. It's part of an overall due diligence for the project. The scoping study is normally having a concept, maybe putting a couple of holes in, doing a couple of preliminary tests and going, I pretty much think we're onto something here. Now we have to go and raise some money. We have to raise some more money because we have to drill some more holes because we have to get some more samples to do more tests to prove this. And you'll normally go into what's called a pre-feasibility study, which then says, I've done enough work here to suggest that I understand this and that I can probably have a plus or minus 25% idea of what this thing might look like. If you get to that point, which is normally a two, three years of work, you then go into what they call a bankable feasibility study, which is you're going to do a study that you can then go to a bank 
or a financier and say, I've done all of this work and this is sufficient work that you should be able to then give me a loan. Can I do an IPO on that? Can I go to the market? Yes, and that's what the bankable study is. You you can go to an IPO as well, but you'll normally have, you know, one, two, three of the big banks behind you funding you as well with the IPO. Your Mm. advice then is extremely valuable and extremely a high level. You're influencing whether or not money gets spent in particular locations. Yes. So let's take gold, for example. Is it at the point now where you're having to make decisions about extracting more and more impurity from the rock to be able to get less and less gold? Yeah, across the board, across the world and in all of the different metals. Why is that? Because we've been extracting metals for right. thousands of years. Yeah. So, so we're the, running out. We're not running out per se. There's still a lot there. Are we having to spend more? But we're having to spend more time, energy and effort to get what we want because the early stuff was on surface. So gold was the first one, and they used to find gold nuggets. It's one of the only metals that appears in its pure form in Mother Nature. So they would find nuggets of gold, and it was pure metal. Was the hand of God found in Australia? I think that one was, yeah, down in Bendigo. And you could basically hammer the gold and make things out of the gold. But as they processed more gold, it became harder and harder to get. Mm. You've got smaller and smaller quantities. And now the gold that we're chasing at times is at a 1,000 metres of depth and at a concentration of only a couple of parts per million, 0.0012%. I have a random question that's just popped into my head, and I'm not sure if I'm going to get this correct, but based on what you just said, do you think that in the future or even starting now, the value of gold will change because of this? Because from my experience, gold has always been one of the most expensive and sought-after metals. And I'm curious if it becomes less and less available and is more expensive to get to and more man work and more, more, more. Will this actually devalue at a bank level or at an investment level the metal itself? Could, for example, silver start to become, if it's more accessible, more is that something that could happen? It is. And there's a whole series of metals like that where if the value of it to extract it starts to exceed its actual known value, then you look at replacing it with something else. So there's a displacement at work. So at times you want your metal to be very valuable, but you don't want it to be so valuable that Mm. people can't afford to use it. There's a balancing act. Gold's an interesting one though, because gold's used as a hedge in the money markets against money and and against exchange rates. And that's a weird sort of thing. Most metals or all other metals, apart from some of the jewellery metals, are just industrially based. You know, it's consumption that's going to drive the cost. And things like nickel and cobalt with the proliferation now of the batteries, Mm -hmm. you know, predominantly nickel, cobalt, lithium, and all of those prices are just going up still. Are those um, commodities that Australia's rich in now, all three of those as an example? Yeah, Australia's a very lucky country in that it has massive mineral wealth. So we are lucky that we've got that. But, you know, we have, I guess, the additional layers now of social licence, environmental licence and things like that, which, yeah. which make it more difficult as time goes on. Mm. to effectively remove these metals from the ground. There are other barriers to accessing the resource and not just about the technology, not just about being able to drill the the particular piece of earth, but whether the neighbours are going to let you get in there to start with. Absolutely Mm. correct. Yep. Okay. So it sounds like it's sort of a mixed stave between an art and a science, really, that there's quite a bit of creativity involved in your work and in the... 
Yes, there is. And I think that's one of the joys of it is all of the easy stuff's gone. We're getting more and more mm. interesting material and you always have to keep your mind open to it used to be like this, but that's not the case today. It's different. Everything changes and it changes all the time. So it keeps you very active and keeps you always looking for, for new ideas and new ways of doing things. And you work closely then to be able to get to the point where a project's getting underway. You work closely with a number of other disciplines by the sound of it, not only geologists. and Yeah, definitely. Look, the project teams that we work with, I'm working on a couple at the moment. It starts off, you know, dealing with the local Indigenous people and having discussions with them very early on in the piece if you're on their land to make sure that they understand what it is you're trying to do and what they need in terms of if you are going to go down a path of extracting minerals from their land, you have to come to an agreement as to how you're going to do that and what's acceptable to them and where it's acceptable. Then we have the overprint of the environmental licenses that we're required to do. So we have each state has a Department of Environment, which we have to deal with. And then there's a federal EPA. Yeah, what, what you're thinking about the EPBC, so the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, I understand that that's being reviewed by our new federal government. Yep. And do you see that coming better into line with state government approvals, processes, I think we have to split the two. Yes. I think what they're trying to do with the EPBC is the right thing. It's an ever-changing, evolving process because we have to get better. Absolutely. We have and to get our environmental protection has to get tighter. And so it has to develop. It can't just sit still. So I think there's two sides to it. It is an ever-changing and it must be an ever-changing system. How we manage that at a government level and below is another thing. And that's... Do that's, you see some du- duplication and, and some gaps? Oh, yeah, but you have to deal with that. That's government and it's never going to be ideal, but that's the environment that you work in. And you spoke about not yourself being underground, but my understanding is that you're not yourself underground, but you're also not yourself under the sea, that there's amazing work going on in terms of proving up resource that we're not necessarily using right now. We're always looking for new areas where we can find metals and and extract them from. And one of the new areas that is sort of in the development phase is looking at subsea mining. So looking at mining off the seafloor. The major areas that they're looking at there, interestingly enough, are the volcanic vents that we get undersea. So when those volcanic vents occur, you get the magma comes up from underneath the earth. That tends to be extremely rich in minerals and you get some very high-grade minerals, things like manganese, iron, cobalt, nickel, that come up and then exist on the seafloor at very high concentrations. So there's a lot of work going into that. But obviously there is some very significant environmental concerns and issues that we need to deal with. And I think it's one of those dilemmas. And it's an interesting one for us all because if we're happy to mine on land, which is the smaller part of the world, and we're not happy to mine on the sea, well, we don't live in the sea. (laughs) I know other things live in the sea, but we're land constrained and we're happy to do it there. Why shouldn't we be doing it in the sea? Gosh, that's an interesting perspective and I hadn't thought about it from that angle, actually. Absolutely, but I'm sure that there's probably ethical and political reasoning behind that for years and years. Years and years, and, you know, the fact is that we now know a lot more about our environment. And if we look back 300 years, I'm not sure we would have done the same things to our landmass. Of course. That we've allowed to we happen. absolutely wouldn't have, that's right. 
right. So it's, you know, what happens with new technologies, they have to be for the current environment and they have to meet with all the current environment. Which is why, as you say, at a national level, there is this body that is promoting the ever-changing processes that are actually happening and promoting the fact that things are always constantly moving and changing rather than here's our one best way forever. It's like that's not going to fly. Correct. So it sounds to me like when you are approaching those bodies at both a, a state and federal level, you would be part of a multimodal team that would be presenting from various different points of view about what has been explored and what the possibility of going further could be? Yeah. So things like today on the projects I'm working on, obviously the amount of carbon that you emit from the process is now of extreme importance. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, it was. Uh, it, it was not a concern to people and to the environmental it department. It wasn't discussed yeah. and it wasn't part of the legislation that was there, but now it is. And you know, now we have to clearly enunciate to people how much carbon we're going to emit and how we are going to reduce that with mm. time mm. to get it down to acceptable levels. So, and so like a footprint, you're talking about a yeah. footprint, yep. which is now, you know, very much at the forefront. And you would be doing that with other people who are specialised in their field of knowing about the environmental results that could happen from, for example, too much carbon, et cetera. Yep. yep. And the, the joy being, though, that, you know, then part of our role as the metallurgist is to try and look at new processes to actually capture that carbon. Yep, yep. For sure. You know, yeah, which is another fascinating field that's, that's evolving is how do we capture that carbon and lock it up. Do you provide advice to government and to industry or do you really only work on the industry side of the table? No, I really only work on the industry side of the table. And yep. is that a, a decision on your part in terms of your business or in terms of feeling uh, like you can't split yourself between the two sides of the table? I guess I've never, well, probably never had the time in ways I've always been in demand in the industry. In the field. In the field. So I've spent all my time and that's where I've enjoyed doing it. And I guess dealing with bureaucracy has never been a, yeah, a strength. Like not a strength of mine. <laughs> I would imagine there's very few of us that enjoy being covered in red tape and then walking down the street. That's it. Yeah. But I, I wanted to jump in here for just a second. I'm quite intrigued and inspired by what I just heard from Dave around the multidisciplinary team that he has to exist with at various stages of the metallurgy career. And I'm going to share with you both my Matthews Monday mood. I, Dave and Michelle, currently work in an acute hospital and listening to you talk about how you interact with other people who aren't of your speciality, but who together can create a better and more whole kind of picture to present brought up in me the fact that I also work in a multidisciplinary role at this hospital. It's quite different, but I think this might be an interesting metaphor. I haven't done that before in my life. So most of the jobs that I've had have been just me as an individual probably working still part of a team, but of a team of me's. So not necessarily a team of other people from other specialities or from other backgrounds in the one sort of area working with one group of people or for one particular outcome. And one thing that I've really, really appreciated in working in this multidisciplinary team is how much richer I get in my role when I experience how somebody else from a completely different role operates within that same area. I learn so much more. I have a perception shift away from what I know as to be just the truth. And I'm invited to actually see things from a more holistic, I guess, level, which I think is a really rewarding position to be in so that you don't get tunnel vision and so that you know that there are so many different ways to kind of look at the situation. Currently where I'm, I'm working in this hospital, I would say that I'm part of a multidisciplinary team of at least 
12 different professions that all come together for the one purpose. And it's a very rewarding and enriching experience, one that I've not had before, because as I said, I've never worked where we're not all just the me's, if that makes sense. Do you find, Dave, that you share that experience when you are working inside of that multidisciplinary arena, for lack of a better word? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the joys mm. is, is you've got multiple inputs and it's not just your vision. It's mm. the vision of other people. And when you're starting to work on these bigger projects, you realise you're one small piece and you need the entire jigsaw puzzle to be in, you know, in working order for you to move forward. And I guess it's where you start to learn whether your strengths are in being the specialist who focuses in on solving their particular problem that needs to be that piece of the puzzle that just goes perfectly in there, or whether you're one of the facilitators who has some experience, so knows that piece needs to go there, but knows if they can work around you, they can provide the space that allows you to put that piece in place. And then you have, I guess, the jigsaw maker, the person who sits above all of that and says the end point must be I have to have the jigsaw complete. My role is to pull all of these people together as efficiently as possible. And that must be different, I suppose, across the life life cycle of a project too. So pre-construction, you're going to be working with a particular yes. list of disciplines. Yep. And then post-construction, you might have different people come into that project team. Do you also work as a project manager then, Dave, as a facilitator across disciplines? Yeah, mainly in scoping studies and pre-feasibility studies and it's something I really enjoy. I actually really enjoy that multidisciplinary listening to what's happening with other people and how we can draw from that experience and expertise. And the joy of that is I get to work with some incredibly smart people. Mm. You just sometimes sit there in awe and just go, wow, Mm. you know, if I can learn just a bit off you then I'm going to become a better project manager. So, And I think the other interesting thing that you mentioned there, Mitch, is that depending on where you are in these projects depends on the sort of people that you're going to have yeah. to work with as well. Yeah. So in the scoping study stages, these are people who love ideas, concepts, sure. big strategy people, yeah. When you get to the feasibility study, it becomes far more focused. It's we have one project, it needs to be this and we need to do the best we can do with that. Then it moves into construction. So you have a completely different group of people and these Mm. are construction people. You know, their job is just to go build something, but build it well and make sure it's built to all the specifications. And then you get into the final phase, which is the production phase. And these, again, they're completely different people because these people just have to do the same thing every day to the best of their ability and just Mm. keep incrementally improving on what they're doing. So these people at the production end are typically not good at the scoping end because they're quite different. Mm. No, it makes a lot of sense. Are Australians um, sought after across the world too because of the nature of our resource-rich continent and also the fact that I understand that we've got pretty good university systems here? Yes, I think we have been, you know, blessed with a, a quite a, an active industry. Our universities, I think we had some very good systems and some good courses. I think we're in a period now where that is not as much the case. That's nothing against the groups that are out there teaching. But I just think certainly when I came up, there were some better educational courses. So we lost some of the scientific rigour? or that- Well, I think what we've done is we went from universities which were there to teach young engineers to universities that have to make money. There's a fundamental difference and that's not the universities and the the lecturers' faults at the moment. That's just how things have progressed. Mm -hmm. So that has changed the way 
things are being taught. But going back to your question, one of the other things that people like employing Australians for is we're pretty damn open and we have a mentality that allows us just to go, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, you get to other cultures that are very rigid and things are done in a certain way. They always have been and that's the way we have to keep doing them. Australians are fairly laissez-faire. They're like, yeah, well, we used to do it that way, but if you want to do it differently, we can do it differently. Happy to look at this. And they're always willing to give it a crack. And we're not hierarchical, are we? No. In comparison with some other cultures. So on all of this, the discussion that we're having, I suppose, is industry-wide focus. I think the question is really not only around the regulatory environment within which you're working and the social licences and, importantly, relationships with Indigenous groups that are vital to getting projects off the ground and creating employment. Where is the industry in terms of our discussion about mining in Australia and where we sit in terms of the decline in coal-fed plants, the general discussion around there being less tolerance for pulling materials out of the ground or out from under the sea? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. I think what I'd call metalliferous mining, which is where we mine for metals, is somewhat different to coal mining and oil and gas. They sort of operate slightly differently to us. And definitely oil and gas and coal mining, you know, in their declining years, and rightly so. They've had their time and they are now on the way down. But we don't have the technologies yet to displace them completely. So those industries will continue, but they will continue to decline. And naturally, they will, you know, eventually disappear, I believe. In the replacement of the coal fed, as an example, with renewables, Mm -hmm. renewables too are going to require an enormous amount of the metals that come out of our... Mm -hmm. Correct. And I guess that's that's the interesting thing. And that's why I split the metalliferous mining away from the oil and gas is what has happened since the Industrial Revolution is basically every 20 years we're doubling the amount of metal that we produce. And the last 20 years has been predominantly because we have China, who have 1.8 billion people, I think, and they have been through a revolution where they've generated a middle class and they've come from the fields and they've now moved to cities. And 20 years ago... In Australia, for instance, 20 years ago, per capita, we would be consuming somewhere between 5 and 10 kilos of copper per person. And you think about that and you go, hmm, sounds a lot, but it's in your electric drill, all electric motors, copper cord windings. Mobile mm-hmm. phones, have they got some copper? They've got a little bit, but not a lot. A lot of gold and other things in them, strangely enough. So China has now moved from a point where their people, the the population there, their average consumption of copper was probably in the order of 0.1 to 0.2 kilos per year because they didn't have electricity Mm. and they didn't have electrical goods. So you don't consume copper. But that's now changed in the past 20 years. Mm. And their average consumption now sits about five kilos per person per year. The need is there then to... It's 1.8 billion people. The maths is really simple. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And then, you know, if we're, we're thinking about the new age that we're going into now with renewables, which is based around predominantly using batteries as part of that, well, those batteries are made of nickel... cobalt, manganese, lithium, and the prediction is we need to, again, in the next 20 years, double the production to meet that demand. So we're in an interesting environment where you would think socially and environmentally our industry is being pushed and squeezed and will therefore get smaller and smaller. Our economy demands something and our population increases, exactly. It, it demands something different. And mm. do you think that's a story the industry could be telling a hell of a lot better? 
I think it is. I think it's one that they understand, and I'm not sure times they, they express that well enough, but I think if we expressed it better, people would understand more the value of the metals that we produce and the need for recycling. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, because this is the era we're coming into now. We need to understand the real value of something that we're willing to mine out of the ground, spend yes. a lot of time and energy and processing. People need to understand the real value yep. of that. And once you've produced it, should we throw it away? Shouldn't we recycle that? So if the drill doesn't work, we throw it in the bin. That's a waste. Can I ask a really, really ignorant question? Can all metals be recycled? The (laughs) fundamental chemist in me would say yes, and then the realist in me would say a majority of them could, and it's a matter of doing it economically. Right, okay. Is is the key, mm-hmm. is, is, is trying to work out ways and means of doing these things economically. Right. So does that come down to a, a calculation as to how much it's going to cost to pull new stuff out of the ground and how, yeah. Yep. Versus yep. recycling. Yeah. But it's also, if you look at the metallurgy industry here in Australia, Africa, China, we're all about extracting, yes. extracting and producing metals. If you go to places like Europe, it's really interesting. The, the metallurgy there is all about recycling because they're running out of their resources. They have to go and look in Africa, in Australia, elsewhere to get their metals. Yeah. So they're much more focused on recycling. We don't see that a lot here. But what they're starting to talk about now is, is what they call life cycle, where you actually look at how you make something. Last longer. Well, last longer, but also if you make it, can't we be smart enough to make it such that when it breaks, we can decouple it yeah, yeah. Yes. simply so that we can then recycle those bits yeah. Brilliant. to get reused? It's a terrible problem they have with plastics, isn't it? Yeah. Trying to yeah. extract the stuff that can actually be recycled and reused, in, yep. especially food-grade materials. Yeah. 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 And some of the bigger companies now are actually looking at that in terms of life cycles. So they're looking at if they produce copper, where does that copper go? Can we trace that copper? And how do we put in place a system whereby we try and manage Manage so that we get as much of that copper back mm. and recycle it before we have to produce more. That's so exciting for people who are maybe considering going into this specialisation as a scientist that coming up through uh, university now, they might be able to specialise in that kind of metallurgical understanding that is there. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I think the sky's the limit. The reason I enjoy doing it so much is because we are continually challenged and we are continually on the leading edge of all of those challenges because people aren't going to accept that they can't get copper or they can't get nickel or they can't. So we have to meet all the standards that exist today to be able to do what we're doing. But in fact, we know that they're going to change in 10 years. So we have to keep working to make sure that when we hit 10 years time, we're actually doing all the right things by then. So, you know, they're all the challenges. I mean, I, you know, as a youngster, one of my biggest frustrations in the mining industry was our poor use of water. And, you know, all of us do it. We don't use water very efficiently. And again, it's where I come back to people understanding the value. The reason we don't use water very well is we're not charged for it. We're not charged the real value for the water. In the mining industry, we were the same. The water wasn't valued enough. So you could look at a project that would save somebody a lot of water, but because the water had no commercial intrinsic value, you couldn't justify doing the project. It was the right thing to do, but it didn't provide an economic outcome. So, so it's, it's deemed as, you know, expendable. Those projects get displaced for those that will make you more profit. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a business that it we, is, yeah. we, we deal with. It's the role of policy, isn't it? It, yeah. it? it is. And again, that's why I like the challenge of these things is all of our projects now have to consider 
how much water we use, yeah. where mm. we're going to get that water for, how much we're going to recycle. And that's fantastic. You know, that's what it should be. It is, yeah. And it provides all those challenges. So for young engineers, you're going to be challenged for the rest of your life. Mm. <laughs> but, but, in a, but I think in a really exciting way, because most of what you're talking about is new to me, but the development of metals that can, at the end of that lifespan, be recycled and reused is something that is extremely important and hot topic right now, not mm. just to environment, but also to economics. And it's interesting to hear that Europe is at the forefront of this, but rather than, I guess, dig deeper or go straight to the oceans, they're like, well, hang on, mm. how can we make what we've already got go further? Yeah. Another really ignorant question for you, with the metals, once they're put to use, whatever that may be, how do the elements in that affect that recycling process? And I'm going to use my words clumsily here, but like if there's any kind of transaction that's happening in the metal for the process that it's created for, is it possible for that then when its lifespan is over to be recycled and have that same possibility, that same con- conduct or... Yep, or yep. It is. Yeah. But it's a good question because you understand the difficulty involved. If you produce pure copper, producing pure copper is relatively easy. It's a beautiful metal. And it's why, you know, one of our great epochs was named after you know, the Copper Age, Bronze Age. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful metal. It's easy to work with in its pure form. If you leave it in its pure form and you use it as wire and wire is pure copper and it's pure because that allows the electrons to flow mm-hmm. more freely. The pure it is, the easier the electrons flow. It doesn't have as many faults. If you keep that copper in that pure form, it's very easy to recycle because we can just take it back, remelt it or just redraw it and it's there. We've not made any changes to it. But if we convert it into an alloy, such as a bronze or something like that, then when we want to reuse it again, the question is, do we want to use it as pure copper Mm. or do we want to recycle it in its current form so that it has to stay in that current form because there's an energy equation and a processing equation then if we need to so alloys are just mixtures of atoms so if we have to split those atoms again and purify it Mm. then there's a lot more energy and work involved in doing that so we can and this is you know one of the struggles with the battery technology at the moment is working out because it's a very complex mix of nickel cobalt manganese lithium and to produce those batteries we have to produce incredibly pure nickel cobalt manganese and lithium products be able to mix them together but once they're mixed together how do we then once it's ended its life how do we yeah, where, where does it go from there? Are we unmixing? Are we remixing? Are we... Yeah. Yeah, where does it go from where, there? Where's, yeah. How do we take that even, you know, to somewhere else? Yeah, yeah super interesting. And are we value-adding along the life cycle and are we also... Or are we extracting some of the strength of the thing that it had at the outset? Mm. Are we diminishing that over time? Um, typ- typically not diminishing it. The metals stay... Unless Mother Nature gets involved, and this is the other bit I like about metallurgy, if you use iron ore as an example, you yeah. know, we mine iron ore, and then we put it into a blast furnace, and then we produce steel, and we all think we're pretty good. We walk around going, <laughs> yeah, Boss. okay, we produce that bit of steel. And within 10 minutes, Mother Nature has converted the outside of that straight back to the mineral. Yeah, I love it. Wow. Just oxidised it. And I was going to say, that's yeah. the oxidisation process, yeah. isn't it? Yep. And Mother Nature goes... <laughs> She goes, sit down. You little metallurgists, you think you're in charge here. You think you're in charge. We've we've talked around some of the the issues with policy. We've talked around some of the um, issues with supply and in the market. I was interested to just understand whether you would see it worthwhile for Australia to bring some of the manufacture back on shore. So we, as far as I understand, we ship to China lots and lots of 
raw metal. Yep. And they then make things out of it and yep. ship them back to us at a price. Yes. Would you see there being opportunities in the future for Australia to onshore more of that manufacture? Oh, look, absolutely. If you look at the iron ore industry at the moment, we export 900 million tonnes of iron ore per annum and we produce 5 million tonnes of steel in Australia. Okay, so that, that, that equation's the question. all so, out of whack, isn't so it? So that, that tells you there's something fundamentally, well, not a fundamental flaw, but there's certainly something Australia needs to do better. There's a significant imbalance, and iron ore is probably the extreme case, but there is a lot to be said for us doing more processing. Mm. There is a driver in Australia in terms of the mineral taxes that are paid, that you pay more tax for unprocessed material than you do for processed material per tonne, which is rightly so. So it gives you an incentive to process it. But I guess this is where you have a clash between China has taken a lot of the iron ore because China can build steel plants cheaper than we can can. and they can run them a lot cheaper because their people don't cost as much and their power doesn't cost as much. So it comes back for me in terms of the real value of something. If you believe that we should be processing more here, then we all have to be prepared, pay the real value of what it costs to produce it here. Our economy forces us that way. So if we're happy to keep buying cheaper Chinese stuff, that's fine. That's a decision. But understand the outcome of that Mm. decision is that you're reducing the competitiveness of others that's it. Yeah. And I think we need to acknowledge the social impact of us outsourcing some of that manufacture to places like China, where we're not necessarily completely comfortable with human rights well, situation as an example. Another factor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, add to that their environmental legislation as well. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I sometimes get a little upset when people, you know, they'll say, look, oh, look, you know, we want to ban sand mining or a particular mine from here, we can get plenty of it out of Indonesia. Now, I'm not sure if many people have worked in Indonesia, but, you know, the environmental laws there are not up to our standard. The social laws there are not up to our standard. And to be honest, my opinion would be I would be much more comfortable that you do it here and that I understand how you're doing it. The implications of such on a bigger scale. On a bigger scale. And, you know, I'll go right out there, like the storage of uranium waste... Okay, there's a lot of discussion about where would you store uranium waste. Well, I'd store it in my own backyard. Well, we should. Well, because then I know what I'm. Then I know what's going to happen to it, and I'm going to do everything possible. You know, at the moment, there's a a fair bit of waste. Just seems to hmm, nobody's quite sure where it goes. It just might go somewhere. And and we see at a very fundamental level here, we had the big supermarkets suggesting that they were going to recycle all the plastic that they produce, and they didn't. Yep. And we have these massive stockpiles of plastic sitting around Australia. And that's why it's the people who are feeding the stock. It should be, the, it should be Coca-Cola Amatol who's fixing that problem, yeah. shouldn't it? Yeah, they, they need to be looking at that. And they, you know, we need to look at ways and means of processing yep. that material. But that's got to be a fundamental part of your business. You can't just, oh, yeah. someone else will deal with that. This, and, and this also is long-term strategy. Yeah. You know, yeah. This, yeah. this is not an overnight decision to make. But, you know, I guess the three of us can remain hopeful that there is movement in that direction. It's slow, but there is movement. And I think, it, like you said at the start, you know, the amount of research and the amount of stages that everything has to go through in order to find that true value requires it to be so. Yeah. Do yeah. you think that now's the right time then to be being creative in the industry and to be looking at the ways that changing environmental law, changing 
changing policy requirements on social licence, etc., instead of looking at those as difficulties, looking at them as challenges and as opportunities, opportunities to create better relationships in communities, etc.? Oh, absolutely. It's the way I approach things. Yeah. That, that's my mindset. Look at these as opportunities. Yep. You're, you're given the chance to do better. So step up to the market. Be, be with the change. Don't hold against it. Yeah. And an exciting thing I'm taking away from our discussion, Dave, is it sounds like creativity and innovation and thinking outside the square are just what you and your compatriots do every day. I take enormous encouragement from that, that industry isn't rigid and, and not looking outside itself, yep. rather that you've got an outward-looking attitude and a welcoming attitude to change and to difference and to mm. diverse ideas is pretty exciting. On that, boys, I'd like to share Michelle's moist moment. So we're sharing a little about our, our background ourselves and the work that we've done in the past. So I'd like to share with you today that I'm very moist about my background as a masked clown. A masked clown, Michelle? A masked clown. Are we talking Commedia dell'arte? We are. I was, I was teaching Commedia dell'arte in my role at Burnside High School and decided that, seeing as I was also running my theatre group on the, on the weekends, that I might, I might try and get the best bang for my buck by using the makeup that I was using at work on the kids, using it on the weekends for myself as well. So I was hiring myself out... <laughs> As uh, Lelio the Lover, Lelio the Lover in the uh, the nice uh, star makeup. It's Paul Stanley out of Kiss, actually. He wears yep. that makeup. And dancing about doing juggling very badly, pretending to do magic that never ever came off, generally being, you know, a failure of, a, of an entertainer. And people loved it. People of course loved they it. do. That's a bit of, bit of the joker, bit of the fool. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mixing Lelio the lover with the jester, definitely. Yeah. That's right. And putting them together. And it was, a, it was good fun. It was a very, um, it wasn't a particularly financially rewarding <laughs> job to have. I also had to be a teacher and a waitress at the same time. But, you know, it was good fun. I wasn't paying the bills, but I got to get out there and be a bit funny and a bit excited on the weekends. I'm sure. And I'm sure it was an opportunity for you to express yourself in a whole new way that had added value. That's exactly right. And nobody was telling me what to do or directing me. So I was out there on my own. And that's not necessarily always. And behind a mask. And behind a mask. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, when you're playing a role and you've got a mask on, you can pretty much do anything, can't you? did, Did you find that? That the Absolutely. mask was a really useful tool. Yeah, to... yeah, yeah. And it was one of the it was one of the um, educational epiphanies that I had, I guess, as a performer, that putting any sort of a barrier between you and your audience gives you license that you didn't know you had before. It's permissive. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of research coming out now in around the use of masks and the ability to use masks to help people separate themselves from their internalized problems, but still express them externally safely. It's it's huge. There's research coming out galore, and it's it's exactly as you just said. It is enough of a barrier for you to be able to take the stuff out from the inside and express it outside without it being your own face, which can be too confronting a lot That's of it. times. Yeah, yeah. And also knowing that if you fall flat on your face, you fell flat on a mask, <laughs> not on your face. <laughs> 
right? I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's also I'm being quite People, literal. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a permissiveness to masks and what they what they offer. I found that I was able to explore ideas that I hadn't been comfortable with yep. as a performer. Mm. Very interesting as a, a bit therapeutic, and good Michelle, as a young person to have learnt that nice and early. That's mm. right. So thank you for for enjoying my moisture with me, guys. Yeah, that, that was great. That was really moist. And to keep up the fun part of our discussion, I'm really interested, Dave, to know whether you've got a favourite ore that you just can't get enough of your love. I've got a favourite ore and I've got a favourite technology. And I might explain the technology first because it was one of the things at the open day uh, when I went to the universities to try and decide what I wanted to do. I saw this thing and it's called a scanning electron microscope. And basically what it does is if you want to magnify something, the magnification that you can get is a function of the wavelength of the light that's coming in. So if you're going to magnify something under normal light, it limits you to how much you can magnify something. What they found out 70 odd years ago was that if you used an electron beam, it has a wavelength which is 500 times shorter than light. So you can get something and if you put it in an electron microscope, you can magnify it 500 more times than the maximum magnification you can get from a normal light microscope. What does that mean? Well, to put it in context, when I went to this show day, we were looking at the hair on the leg of an ant and that hair took up probably 50% of the screen. Astounding. Astounding and frightening. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Also, do they make razors big and little enough? (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, you can actually look. You can look. You can... And you don't want to do it. (laughs) Don't look at a razor blade. (gasps) No, stop talking. Because if you look at a razor blade and you look at the edge of a razor... Stop talking. You don't put that on your skin. I'm not ready for this level of truth. I'm not ready either, actually, now I think about it. But, you know, I'm sure sure if we looked at most of the things that we consume, touch, play with and experience, if we looked at it at that percentage of close-up, we'd be mortified. It's it's stunning. It's stunning what you see. And the other wicked thing about this technology is when you are pointing an electron beam at something, when an electron hits an atom of a certain element, that element actually emits an X-ray. And that X-ray has an energy which is very specific to that atom. So every element has a different X-ray energy. Right. So while you're looking at this thing and pointing electrons at it, X-rays are coming off. So if you put an X-ray detector there, while you're looking at it, you can analyse it. And you can actually see what it's made of. So that's my technology. Uh, I played with one for years and I think every science kid should have one. Then bit too expensive still, but I reckon they're, they're worth having. In terms of metals, my metal of choice is copper, and I've been lucky enough to go and work in Cyprus, which is where the word copper comes from. So copper, C-U, comes from the word cyprium, which derives from the ore of Cyprus. Oh. So one of the oldest known smelters in the world was at Cyprus, and I've worked at, at that site. That must where be it is. pretty special. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But copper is a, it's a beautiful metal. It has a beautiful patina to it when you look at it. You know, yeah. a lot of people like metal. But one of the processes, and I was lucky enough to get involved in it very early on uh, in the 1970s and 80s, we developed a new process for producing copper. And first what we do is we take ore and then we apply acid to the ore and we dissolve the copper. It's a bit like dissolving sugar in your coffee. Mm. It's there, you just can't see it, it's just solubilised. Then we invented this molecule 
which if you mix with kerosene, this molecule likes copper atoms, just copper atoms. They just designed it to like copper atoms. Mm -hmm. So when you mix the kerosene with the solution that you've got from leaching the copper, this kerosene with the chemical in it, it just picks up all the copper and takes it out of the solution. And you think, well, that's neat. But then what do I do? Because I've now got kerosene with copper in it Mm. and I've got a solution with nothing in it. (laughs) Next. Next. The beautiful thing about that little molecule that wanted to extract the copper is when it takes the copper out, it actually exchanges something back in. It exchanges acid. That acid goes back to your leaching circuit, leaches more copper, and you get bring the copper back around, and oh. you can just keep doing that. Yeah, right, wow. right, right. So you go, wow, that's wicked. But what do I do with copper and kerosene? Okay, what you do with copper and kerosene is we design this molecule, because this molecule is it's a bit like us. It likes when it's, it's attracted to things, but it's attracted to things in quantity. So the more you give it, the more it wants. So when it sees a lot of copper, it goes, I'll take the copper. <laughs> Takes as much copper as it can until it runs out of copper. But it likes acid more. Okay. Wow. So what you do is you take the kerosene, which has just got copper in it. Anything else you leach, nobody cares. Just takes copper. You've got kerosene with copper. Then you mix some acid with the kerosene. And it hops off and, and goes. And it hops off and it says, Oh, acid's here. I'm out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Wow. And you know what happens when you mix kerosene and water together? It forms an emulsion. Yeah, but yeah. But if you stop mixing, it separates. Yeah, yeah. So that's how you separate, physically separate. So you do a chemical separation, then you do a physical separation. Sounds like cream. Yeah. So you end up with this, yeah. Cream on top? It does, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's what you rely on. The kerosene that's floats right. on top. Yeah. So you separate that away. The denser solution, which yeah. has the copper now in it with some acid, you take that separately. The kerosene... With the acid in it, well, that goes back to the previous stage. Yeah, yeah, it's recyclable. So it's, it's recyclable. That would have been groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. yeah, and then what happens is when you take that copper sulfate solution, if you electroplate the copper, so add electrons, mm-hmm. DC current, and a little bit of water, you produce pure copper. Ah. But what else does it produce? Acid. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. So the acid comes back around in a high concentration. You mix it with the kerosene that's got the copper in it. Mm-hmm. And you get the copper back out. So you have these three recirculating. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. It, it, it's just a beautiful chemistry and, mm. and the way it works, it's just, it's really neat. That's fascinating. Is Cobar one of our biggest areas for copper, is that? No, not anymore. Cobar used to do a, a little bit of copper. The main copper producers at the moment would be Mount Isa. Okay. And there's a decent copper gold mine at Parks. Yep. And there's a few others around. I could definitely hear in Dave's voice that that was his favourite metal because oh, of yeah. that process there. Devalued listener, if you could see him, he's lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> in explaining that to us, his hands were absolutely part of the process. The face was alive. It was a joy to be in the room with, wasn't it, Michelle? And what we love about that is that Dave's the perfect interviewee for a discussion about science because he's as, as excited as he is. Mm. <laughs> And um, as connected as you are too, Dave. So as our last question to you, have you got advice for people who are listening in on this and go, oh, I want to be what he is? How do I go about doing that? Do I listen carefully in physics and choose all the science subjects at school? Yeah, look, I think that's what I did. I chose the science subjects because I enjoyed them. I was good at them. But I would add to that, make sure you're good at English. Because communication is a massive value add to your profession. So don't devalue it. Make sure you can, you work on your communication strengths. But yeah, the sciences and I think, you know, geology, mining engineering, metallurgical engineering, any of those downstream technologies, 
there are so many opportunities there. For me, I was lucky that I fell into something that I enjoyed. I think follow the science paths and you'll find a, a yep. space in that science area that you'll enjoy. Yep. Find your passion. And fi- yeah, find your passion and, and then follow that and enjoy that. But, you know, I would suggest to people that I think that we have undervalued and put too many negatives on a lot of the uh, physical science professions like metallurgy because it's deemed to be not environmentally friendly. Dirty and dirty. Yep. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I, I've struggled to put the words together because they don't ring well in my ears, but it's, you know, parents would, if someone suggested they wanted to get into the mining industry, a majority of parents probably would prefer you didn't. But That's just around education though, I, right? I, it is. As you said earlier, most of us don't actually know what we're talking about or what the value is of what's actually happening in the long term. Correct. And I, and I think that's part of it. You need to go, if you're interested, go down that path and find out because you'll find that if you're in there, you can actually change it. You can be part of that change. That's such an important point, isn't it? That's right. From yep. the inside, you mm. can affect change. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And your discussion about the circular economy and the idea of recycling what it is that we're using today, I think that a lot of people will be very excited by that. Mm. I'm, I'm excited by the fact that your discipline, your specialisation is able to give advice across the life cycle of a, a piece of metal. Well, I have certainly learnt a lot. I've learned heaps. I've learned heaps. Thank you so much for coming on our episode today, Dave. We are really grateful and we hope our devalued listeners have enjoyed learning as much about your profession as a metallurgist and all that that entails as Michelle and I have. Absolutely. And probably don't try the kerosene thing at home. Is it no. something we should say? <laughs> no, but if they're interested, I, I could always give them a demonstration. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Michelle. Um, we're going to wrap our episode up now. Devalued listeners, please come and find us on Instagram. We're at Eminem the Podcast, which reads as Mandem the Podcast. And we are so thankful that you joined us, Dave, and all our listeners. And we will be back with you next week for another incredible episode of Eminem the that's, Podcast. That's goodbye from me. Thanks, Michelle. Goodbye, Dave. Goodbye from him. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.